Could you open up to uh, Ruth chapter 2? We're going to continue on in the Ruth story. Um, I was this past week on a long texting feed with my sisters and my mom and my brother, and we were sharing memories about our favorite things of our Christmas past. Do you ever get on those texting feeds with family? Oh, man, some, like you'll be in a meeting and you'll hear ding, ding, and it's all my sisters. Like, all right, enough of this. But I got kind of nostalgic, missing things that once were, and I was thinking back of some of my favorite memories. I loved, uh, like, did you ever watch those? When I was a little kid, the ABC specials with Rudolph and Santa Claus were like, it was like the big thing. I don't know if you remember that. My sisters and I would lay on the living room floor. My mom would pop popcorn, put it in a, a grocery bag and butter, and, man, we would wait up just for that day. They'd advertise. I remember that. It was great. I also remember uh, my brother had a paper out, and Sunday mornings were a big deal. Like, you'd have the comic section, the sports section, the business section. You had to put it all together, and you put them in these pouch bags, and we'd go up and down the streets. We live right across from Lake Erie, and our, my hands always felt frozen, but I'd come back, and my mom would make hot chocolate, and I'd drink it, and my hands would come alive again. They'd feel like pinpricks, but it was a great feeling. I love the pain of that. It's great. But my favorite memory was when I was 23 years old. In the month of November of that year, I just really dedicated, gave my whole life to Christ. I finally really understood salvation. And the Christmas that year was like no other Christmas. The stories, I just were, was drinking in everything I could, just about the details of the story, how the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, how Malachi talked about Bethlehem, and just to realize that the stories that we share aren't just fairy tales. It's not something that makes you cry and feel good. They really happened. And all of these stories in the Old Testament are given to us, and they're very specific and incredibly detailed because they're called foreshadowing of the one who fulfills everything, which is, of course, Jesus. And we decided to go through this book of Luke, uh, Ruth, we're going to the Old Testament book of Ruth, because Ruth, believe it or not, is a detailed account of who Jesus is. Even though it's a little romance story about this Moabite named Ruth and this rich landowner named Boaz, it's truly a foreshadowing about the true redeemer, kinsman redeemer, who redeemed us. And hopefully... After we go through this and somebody asks you in 20 years, what was one of your favorite Christmases? And you'll say, oh, I remember we went through that series on Ruth. It has stuck with me to this day. And that's my hope for you. So if you can, open up to Ruth chapter 2. We are going to continue on. And this week's title of this chapter I'm calling Amber Waves of Grain. And there's a reason for this. Last week we said chapter 1 we titled, There is Famine in the Land. There was a lot of want, there was a lot of hunger, and it ended in chapter 1 by saying, and the barley harvest was beginning. So with chapter 2, instead of famine, we have bounty. We have fields that are full of grain. And to somebody living during that day and age, that was the greatest hope that we're going to survive the whole next year. Instead of darkness, instead of worry and concern and anxiety, we have hope, yellow, blue skies, amber fields, and it should be a feeling of joy, of God's promises being fulfilled. 
If you remember last week, we said the story is very simple. It's this lady named Naomi who's really the one that we're focusing on. She lost her husband. She lost two of her sons who died. And uh, she headed back to her homeland, which is Bethlehem, with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And they were, they were uh, desperate. And so we pick up here in chapter 2, and look how chapter 2 begins. Begins with what the subject is going to be. Verse 1 is from the narrator's point of view. The narrator says, now Naomi, it's almost like he's whispering to us, giving us inside information before the action kicks off. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech. He's a man, and his name is Boaz. So there's this man named Boaz. And so it's sort of like foreshadowing the rest of the story, but they want you to be aware that this guy named Boaz, this is the guy. This is the man. This is the answer to Naomi and Ruth's problems. And when he shows up, things are going to go down. You know what I mean? Like, this is the guy. So, you could even say it like this. God's solution to two ladies' problems, and I, you might not like it, but their solution is found in a man. That's right. I know we're not allowed to say that this day and age. This is 2022. How dare you? Well, let's look at what it says about him. He's a relative on her husband's side. So her husband, who's a Limelech, whose heritage Jewish blessing went through, is dead. And she is saying, wait a minute, there's this guy related to my husband who's from the same clan. He can become a redeemer. We'll talk about that in a second. But it says he's a relative. In the Hebrew, that word is often translated a friend, someone who cares. But he's not just a friend who can do something. He's a friend who's also related, so he is the authority to do something. They're family. It says also that he's a man of standing. Other versions say he's a wealthy man. One version said he's a noble man. The Hebrew term for this also says he's like a war hero. So this guy not only is a friend who's the ability to help, but this guy's got resources. He's a rich dude, a war hero, a noble man. You could say this guy is a powerful man. In fact, his name means in the strength of Yahweh. This is a man's man. And again, you might be thinking, so you're telling me the answer to the lady's problems is a man. That's very chauvinistic, you know. That's very barbaric, especially living in the fourth wave of feminism, which we're living in. Women now have the ability to do everything that men can do, if not better. They don't need a man to save them. Least of all, a husband to give them significance. Well, I'm going to say something controversial for our day and age. And I believe this with everything in me. I think every single one of us in here, every single one of us has been made to be, we want to be rescued by a man. We want a hero. Every one of us wants a hero. Why else do you think Marvel and DC is so interesting to people? Because we want to be rescued. And we want a man 
who is so much more powerful and able than we are to come in and rescue us. And I believe that's even true for women. And I know there's a group of women in our world that hate men. I understand that. But you know why I think they hate men? Because I think they've been let down so much by men. Either having a mean father, silly brothers, deadbeat husbands. And then you have a media that daily downs men. Take The View, for instance. You get enough of that, you are, man, there is no hope that a man is going to come and rescue me. So it's a waste of time. And I believe hatred comes from longings that are unfulfilled. When you want something to happen and it never happens, when you want a dad to show up and he never shows up, you want a husband that's kind and caring and he's just mean, that longing turns to bitterness, which turns to hatred. But I think God has planted a desire in all of us because there is a person. There is a man who has come and his name's Emmanuel. He came as a baby, but he grew up. And did you know this baby is alive right now? I think what happens to us in Christmas is we go back and we think it's so cute. We imagine, you know, a little baby sucking on its thumb and a mom rocking the baby. That baby today is watching you right now sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's alive. And he not only is related to you, he's your brother, he's strong, like really strong, and he owns everything. And I think what we have to do to really understand the Christmas story is to realize it's not just back there. We're going to see this man again, the one that our hearts are longing for. That's what adoration is all about. So, let's go into chapter 2, because chapter 2 is pretty cool. It's a cool story. And when you meditate on it a long time, it really comes alive. So I'm going to try to bring it alive for you a little bit. might give you a little bit of the Chris Weeks standard version, kind of. But the first part of the story I'm going to call coincidence. Huh, it's just a coincidence. And we find it in verse 2 through 4. So it begins in verse 2. So the narrator's done, and it goes back to action. And Ruth the Moabitess, and you'll notice every time it brings Moabitess in there, the writer wants you to realize this lady is not part of, originally, Israel's covenant people, but she married into it through Ruth, but there's still a stigma. She's still probably mistreated by those people in Bethlehem. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said, go ahead, my daughter. And here's the idea. They just got back from Moab. They are depressed. Naomi is depressed. And Ruth is like, we got to survive, so I'm going to go into the fields and glean. In Jewish law, poor people could follow reapers. That means people are cutting down the stalks of grain, and any they drop, the poor people were allowed to pick up for themselves. It's kind of like a welfare program for the poor. And so Ruth says, I am going to follow Jewish law. And Ruth, Naomi, we need to eat, so I'm going to start gleaning. And she's, she's, Naomi's had it. She's like, go ahead, just go ahead. And what happens, need, need drives the action in the story. 
But did you know need drives the action in all of life? I think God puts need in your life so you'll get up off your butt and pray and do something. I'll say it like this. To get people to act and to move history forward for God's plan to be moved forward, God will often allow there to be lack. A lot of times in your life, he'll allow there to be dissatisfaction, struggle, financial, physical problems, because hunger and need moves people to exert effort. Dissatisfaction drives endeavor, it drives ambition, and it drives prayer. You've probably heard this phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. I would say necessity is also the push from God's hand for you to live again. If you notice with Ruth, Ruth is ready to live again. I'm going to fight. We live, in a, we live in a day and age where people are more willing to quit than to get up and try again. Let me ask you this question. When do you pray the most? When your need is the greatest or when you're most satisfied? Probably many of you don't pray because you've got everything taken care of. I think sometimes God puts things in your life that are difficult so you will finally reach out to one who wants to save you. When do you dream the most? When you're not satisfied. So the question, how are you feeling today? Some of you, because I know me, and I've, I've shared this with you sometimes, I'll tell you what, Sunday mornings, I get up pretty early and pray because I feel inadequate. Some of you are in here because the real world's falling apart and you want to quit. And I'm just telling you, God puts that lack in there so you will reach out for him. So watch what happens when Ruth begins obeying the law and following the law. It's where it gets really interesting. So it says here, Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, and she began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. So she goes out behind the harvesters. First field she finds, she goes there to pick up the grain. And then this phrase is really interesting. It says, as it turned out, huh, just coincidentally, you know, just so happens, just so happens, she found herself working in the field belonging to, remember that guy we talked about earlier? Boaz. So you could say this. In God's economy, that's the way that God has set up the world, coincidence is providence. Little events in your life aren't just happenstance. God's behind the scenes moving you to accomplish what he wants done. We can look for the miraculous in even the little teeny tiny things. Ruth just happens to show up at the field. Huh. So you could say it like this. Why can we look for the miraculous? Because his mercies new every morning. Every single morning you wake up, he can change your day. He can start it all over. He can switch it from famine to harvest. Watch, uh, so watch what's really interesting. So that phrase, as it turned out, we're going to, as it turned out, huh, 
The first field she started working at was Boaz's field. Isn't that interesting? That's just coincidence. It's just coincidence that you're here on church. Just a coincidence. I know your mom made you come. But I have a feeling there's more to it than you just happening to be here this morning. Then keep reading, and it gets even more interesting. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who is from the clan of Elimelech. Remember that again. I want you to remember, this guy's more than meets the eye. And then verse 4 begins by saying, Just then, huh, Boaz himself arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. And they say, the Lord bless you. So here's the big owner of the field. He's probably like Elon Musk. So here's Elon Musk. Shows up. Just bought the Twitter field. You know what <laughs> Let's get, Chris, get off of that. All right. Boaz, Boaz, man, this guy has it all. Why is he going to go check on his peasants? I don't know. It just turns out the day that Ruth shows up, it's the same day he just wanted to go check out on the field. Wow, what a coincidence. Golly gee. Huh. That's kind of how you're supposed to read it. Same day she arrived, Boaz shows up. And he's greeting them, and man, they like him, you know, like, hey, they're, hey, the Lord bless you. I mean, it's a joyful feeling because they're harvesting this bounty. It's amazing. It's kind of like the Wizard of Oz pulling behind the curtains. God's back there pulling Boaz and putting him there and Ruth there, and he knows what he's doing. Kind of reminds me of the Christmas story. You know, your life is just a random glob of uh, molecules, like evolution says. Really? Just so happens. Really? Christmas story. As it turns out, as the Christmas story turns out, there is this strange star in the sky that just happened to catch the attention of some wise men that just happened to lead them to Jerusalem, where there just happened to be scholars who said, oh, it's taking you to Bethlehem, and they just happened to go to Bethlehem, where there just happened to be this virgin, and it's really weird, this virgin was able to give birth. That was kind of weird. That's just a coincidence. And this baby that was given birth just happened to be from the lineage of Judah. What's so important about that? Well, from Judah, you got Jesse, who's got a son named David.
see what they like, it moves them. I, I don't know how else to say it. God hired meant to burn like a hot fire. That's from Song of Solomon. I dare you to read that book. I shouldn't let you read that book. I'm a pastor, but it's in the Bible, Chris. I know, but it's hot, like it will burn you. It talks about sex in there. Don't say that word up here. All right. It's bad. I know it's bad, but God designed it. It's his fault. I know. It's crazy. It's his invention and his way to continue on a godly legacy upon the earth. He says in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, be fruitful and multiply because he wants godly inheritance. If it wasn't, here's, here's my, I believe this, if it wasn't for attraction, there are not many men I know who would ever get married. Do you know what I'm saying? If men just won't willingly give their money away to be used the rest of their life, you know? But it's attraction. It's attraction. Attraction will make you do the craziest things. Watch what happened to Boaz, starting in verse 6. Verse 6. The foreman replied, she's the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now except for a short rest. So she is a worker. And she, she's respectful. She obeyed the, the Jewish law. And so here's Boaz who saw her in verse 5 and verse 8. Ah, Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. You know, this was risque for him because she's a Moabitess. He's talking to her directly, and he's basically saying, you come under my protection. I'll take care of you. I gotcha. Attraction does that for men. What do you need? I'll get it for you. You want that dress? You got it. I mean, it's weird how you can just give your money out because you're attracted. It's really weird, Jack. I don't know how to explain it to you. But we're not allowed to I wish girls knew how much power they had. You know what I'm saying? I think they do, but they won't tell us. They won't tell us. So verse 9, watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the other men not to touch you. I wouldn't touch her either if Boaz is saying that. And whenever you are thirsty, oh, go get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Now, that's risque. I don't know if you know, but you don't just let somebody go to where the guys are to drink their water. You don't, he's doing that. He is attractive. I think a godly romance in God's original design is combustible. And it's powerful. And it takes two. It takes a female. I don't know why I have to explain this anymore, but I do. It takes a female and it takes a male. That's how it works. It takes a female and a male. Because Jesus said, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will be one flesh. Like, that is something. That oneness. There's, it's, it's almost like it's a new entity when those two become one. And I'm talking, I'm going to talk about godly romance because it's not just romance we're talking about. We're talking about a romance 
that continues on a godly inheritance. So it's a godly romance, and it's perfectly exemplified by Ruth and Boaz here. And so I'd say in Ruth's case, she probably was beautiful, but she has a beauty that's clearly from her inside shining on the outside. In the Old Testament, often you'll see this word called countenance. Countenance means a your face, and I think this is really true. You can kind of tell this from people, but countenance says your face reflects your character. It just does. You can see people who are just bitter people. Their face reflects their character. I think in Ruth's case, she reflected a godly character. I mean, clearly, from this narrative, we see that Ruth put other people's needs before her own. She was actually out in those fields to take care of Naomi. Where you go, Naomi, I'm going to go, and I'm never going to leave your side. She was other-centered, not just self-centered. She was courageous. A Moabitess going into a Jewish field, that takes courage. She's a hard worker, and she's very humble and gracious. Look at verse 10. She bows to Boaz after he tells her she can, you know, serve in his fields and have water. She bowed down with her face to the ground, and she exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? She's humble. She's humble. And attracted Boaz's attention. Look at what he says in verse 11 and 12. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law. Since the death of your husband, she's very other-centered. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Proverbs says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord, is to be praised. And Ruth was this kind of woman. You could also say it like this. Ruth's character, Ruth's character attracted a man of character. That's always true. A woman of character, if she wants a man of character, she needs to have character. But often we live in a day and age where women don't attract men by their character. They try to attract men by other things. And if you attract men by other things, you're never going to get men of character. A woman of character attracts men of character. And Boaz was that man. Boaz was a man of conviction. If you see verse 12, he talks about he attributed all of this to God and wanted her to be blessed by God. So clearly Boaz loved God. He clearly loved God. And I think his strength was from his conviction that God blesses and God is real. And I'll just tell you, men, if you want to be a leader, you first have to be a follower. And if you're a follower of the living God, women will want to follow you because they know they can trust you. A lot of times, men will only be godly to impress the woman. And then when they got the woman, they quit being godly. And then they become but I would say no longer leaders. But if you got a guy who's following God, and you have a woman that will start following that guy who's following God, he'll even say things that make her mad, but she'll still love it because she knows he's following God. I don't know how to explain it to you. When godly men make women, when godly men make women mad, it actually makes them more attractive. But when you have little wimpy guys that will do things 
They say they love God because the woman's impressed. They really don't mean it, and a woman gets sick of that. I don't know how to explain it to you. I've just seen it a lot. Second thing I'd say about Boaz is look what she says about him in verse 13. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort, and you have spoken kindly to your servant, though I don't have the standing of one of your servant girls. What impressed her? What really won her heart towards Boaz is his kindness. It's his kindness. That's what brought her heart to him. And I'll say this. The true way to tell what a man's heart is like is if they are kind or not. And if you're dating a guy who's not kind now, they won't be kind after you're married. But here's what kindness is. In the same way meekness is strength under control, like a strong man decides to be under control, kindness is a strong man who uses his strength for your good. That's really what kindness is. It's a strong man using his strength to bless you. And we live, like every TV show you see or movie or whatever, we call it toxic masculinity, whatever it is, But that's easy. It really is easy to be a guy who can step on a truck accelerator and get tattoos. It's really not hard, truthfully. Do you know it's not hard to put on, like, lift weights and put on a tight black t-shirt and think you're something and swear? That's not hard either. Do you know it's hard? Being kind. Listening to somebody who's broken. Looking at a woman and knowing what her need is and then serving that need. Do you know that's a man? It's not hard to be a tough guy. It's hard to be a kind guy. And I'll tell you, what draws a woman to a man is not his looks, but it's his heart. So when these two types of people are drawn together, there's combustion and it's hot, like really hot, explosive. And that's the way that God, God wired it. Did you know God does this sexual stuff? It's his design. It's funny, it's like we get nervous about that. But he wants it to be hot. He wants it to be passionate. But sadly, I'll say this kind of godly romance has become a lost art. It's become a lost art. I think because men are, they don't see in Boaz a character to exemplify. And in Ruth, women don't see be like Ruth. So for the men, men these days find it easier to hide in their basements and focus on screens than risk being rejected. It's interesting, as listening to Jordan Peterson, as a group of men that follow him, and he gave them this, he gave them this uh, challenge. He, he wanted these men for one month to ask out 50 girls. And the reason why is he said because the hardest thing for men is this risk of rejection. This risk of being not wanted. And he said, the more you face that and the more you get rejected, the easier it is. Just go out there and try it. I remember when I was in sales, I had to go in downtown Chicago and I had to go from office to office and do cold called sales for office products. And my boss said, you have to at least go to 100 people because if you can get 2% of them, you'll make your, your budget every month. So that means I'm going to be rejected by 98 people? Yep. Yep. Thank God for that. I don't think I would introduce myself to my wife if I first wasn't rejected. She scared me half to death. 
The story is, the first time I saw her in the library, I said, hi, Michelle, uh, my name is Chris. I'm a really shy guy. I didn't say anything, and then I said, um, I'm a really shy guy. I'll see you later, and I took off. And I'm walking out of the library going, God, why did you make me? I think for just your humor alone, I felt like such an idiot. Let's continue on. On the other end, it's just as bad. On the other side of the coin, there's abundance of women who are obsessed with self. And so instead of serving others, they serve themselves by comparing photos, taking selfies, you know, at that Starbucks cup at the ice, and they swirl it around, and they take a little story. See? And you know what? I'll tell you what. Naval gazing has become the prime hobby, hobby of most young women these days. And good men, men with character, I'm just telling you, men with character would rather hide in the woods for the rest of their lives and consider dating a woman who's obsessed with themselves. That's just the truth. So we need both Boaz and Ruth, people of character, serving others, and having courage to try. Which leads us to part three, wonder. So the way this chapter ends, simply put, it's too good to be true. So God's telos, his design in bringing a man and woman together, if done right, his design, when you do it right, it always works better than you could ever ask for, hope, or think. It's always a win, win, win for everybody. It's a win for everybody. I remember talking to somebody even about how God has made seeds. So you take one little seed, plant a tomato seed, and that tomato seed will come out for a hundred tomatoes maybe on one plant. God's design always benefits everybody else. Boaz and Ruth's godly romance not just benefited Naomi, but you and me. It's amazing. But it's a wonderful thing. So watch verse 14. So verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to Ruth, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. So he invites her to sit with him, to eat with him. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. Somebody said it's kind of like sunflower seeds. It's fried wheat grain or barley grain that just tastes really good. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. Do you remember the multiplying, the, when Jesus multiplied the fish? They had a lot left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks from her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So these guys had to take out from some of their, their uh, harvest and just let it down so she could have more than enough. And I'll tell you what, I wouldn't cross Boaz when he told me, oh, yes, sir, I'll do that, whatever you say. Then you have verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an epa, which is 24 pounds of grain. The average man in one day's gleaning would get one pound of grain. She got 24, so here she has a sack of barley. A sack of barley. So by meeting Boaz, he provided for her. He protected her. Don't touch her. 
and he put her under his care. He's quite a guy. And I just want you to think about this compared to chapter 1 when God took away Elimelech and the two sons. Boaz is greater than those guys. And often in life, this is true. God will often take things away from us. Things that we think are the best thing for us. Because he's got better. He's got better. And in fact, he can do it in a day. Watch what happens. So, verse 18, she carried back this 24 pounds of grain back to town. And her mother-in-law saw, in one version it says, and her mother-in-law noticed. So, so Naomi probably isn't, isn't even considering it was a good day. And then she sees Ruth hauling this bag of grain. What in the world? Like, her mind probably switched. It's talking about when I can remember before my daughter Ginger is born, you know, nine, that nine-month labor is terrible. It's bad. Like, it's bad. But the moment that daughter Ginger is born, my wife never talked about her labor again. Because God can take your pain and in a moment turn your world upside down where it's greater than you could ever hope or imagine. Ever. And so, like a mother-in-law, she, she can't believe this. So, so here's what she said in verse 19. So, where did you go? Give me the 411. Where did you go? Where did you glean? Where did you work? Who was the guy? Because whoever it is, blessed be the man who, who you work with today, you know, who took notice of you. And Ruth, and I think Ruth kind of pulled this out because it was such an exciting thing. Watch how she pulls this out. This is my interpretation. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. Here it is. The name of the man I worked with today, his name is Boaz. And verse 20, I don't think it's like it has an exclamation point. I think, I think Naomi probably had a heart. What? The Lord bless him. You have got to be kidding me. It was Boaz who did this for you. And then she goes into this long Jewish rant. Here, here she says, basically, he's not just stopped showing kindness. Basically, she's saying, oh, he's blessed my husband and his lineage. And that man is our close relative. Well, so what? Ruth's probably saying, so what? That means... He can be a kinsman redeemer. This is a huge term for a Jewish person. The reason why Leviticus 25 says a kinsman redeemer is a person from your tribe who can, if you go into debt, buy all off your debt and purchase back all your land. So if you gave it to somebody to pay off debt, it's under their care, but a kinsman redeemer can buy it back for you. Also... A kinsman redeemer, if you sell yourself into slavery, in the Old Testament, if I owed debt, I would give myself to somebody as a slave. It's indentured servanthood. A kinsman redeemer, somebody who is related to you, can redeem you back and set you free from that. 
So Naomi's saying, wait a minute, this Boaz, he can not only buy our land back, this Boaz, Ruth, do you realize you are Elimelech's daughter-in-law, he can marry you. But what really she's saying is grandbabies. I can have grandbabies. That's what this is all about. I can continue on my husband's legacy through children. Boaz is the redeemer. And that's why she then goes in verse 21, and Ruth said to the Moabitess, oh, okay, so then Ruth the Moabitess said, he even said to me, stay with my workers. He even told me to stay close. So Naomi's like, okay, all right, all right. Here's what you got to do. It'll be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, stay in his company of people, because someone else's field, you might be harmed. She's basically saying, stay close to this guy, Capture his eye. Don't leave him. And if you leave him, you know, you might be harassed by other people, so stay close to him. In other words, get him. Because I want grandbabies. That's what she's saying. It's really what she's saying. Truth is, when you have found what you've been looking for, when you have found what is your heart's desire, you will no longer go gleaning in any other field. And it's true being a Christian. We have found a God whose name is Emmanuel, God with us, who, according to Hebrews chapter 2, was made in every way just like we are because he wanted to share in our experience. He wanted to be our brother, humanly speaking. That's why he put on flesh at the Incarnation. When he became a baby, it's because he wanted to be like you. He wanted to be related to you. He also, according to Ephesians 1.7, purchased our redemption out of slavery, sinful slavery, with his blood. So he is our kinsman redeemer. And when you have found him, he's everything you've been looking for. So why are you still carousing all these other fields that the world is offering but has nothing really to give you? With Jesus, just like with Ruth, he gives you more than you can ask for. He puts you under his care. And he will protect you. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 45. Hebrews, I'm sorry, Psalm 45, Psalm 45. There is no Hebrews 45, just seeing if you're paying attention. Psalm 45, Psalm 45 is a psalm, and I've said this often because this is to me one of the most thrilling psalms in all the Bible. It's a, it's a psalm of the groom, it's a wedding psalm, there's a wedding taking place, and the, uh, it's really about the guy getting married, and this psalm so it's called a messianic psalm. That means a lot of the verses in here are used in the New Testament specifically about Jesus. So this psalm is a wedding psalm about Jesus. And listen to what it says about him. Verse 1. My heart is stirred by a noble theme. Like, I'm, i got to tell you about this. I'm kind of excited. As I recite my verses for the king, my tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men. Remember, we are looking for a hero. And 
He's the most excellent. Your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. God's blessing is on this man. And it talks about him in verse 8, what it looks like at the wedding ceremony. His robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. And he's from palaces adorned with ivory, the music of strings makes you glad, you know, so the music's playing. He's got his entourage in verse 9. And then the writer of the psalm is like Naomi in verse 10, is like we're Ruth. So the writer, Naomi, is telling us, Ruth, in verse 10, what to do. Look what he says. Listen, O daughter. Consider and give ear. Forget your people in your father's house. Forget Moab. Forget all those other fields. Forget the life you've lived in the bar. Forget all of this stuff trying to be somebody. Forget your people in your father's house. Why? Why should I? Because you know the king... That man we are telling you about, the Redeemer, he's enthralled by you. He loves you. And then it says, honor him, for he's your Lord. You don't need to go to any other field. You have the Redeemer if you just honor him.